everyone. Uh, welcome to this very Christmassy edition of Trash Future. It's me, Riley. Ho, ho, ho. I'm joined by... Now I have a machine gun. I am joined <laughs> by uh, Alice, who now has a machine gun, mm-hmm. and Milo, who does not have a machine gun. Uh, That's right. I am, my, mine has been given to the ambulance driver. Yes. <laughs> uh, I am also uh, going to be joined in the second half of this episode by Dominic Loister uh, of the Eurotrash podcast, uh, who is also an economist and historian. We are going to be talking about what is the poly crisis? What do people mean when they talk about it? What do lazy people mean when they talk about it? And uh, I happen to remember from the past that that is a pretty good conversation. So do stick around for that. However, before we get into that, uh, I have some Christmas presents that have been given to me by the news to strike a, 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 a stick out in particular. Uh, the well, first our, one, our best friends, right? Because we yes. we have this like um, thing where we don't we don't like the police very much, apart from international financial investigators. Wait, what? Oh god, I'm gonna have to get rid of that poster. <laughs> <laughs> we love we love Buffin. We love the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, we love the Serious Fraud Office because they they bring us Christmas presents like this. The um the SEC and the FBI have arrested. SBF Sam Bankman-Fried, um, and they, to be they, honest, I'd say we this could also have been one for the obvious fraud office. Realistically, <laughs> yes, yeah, oh um, yeah. The, the many the many shirts we haven't made. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about the obvious fraud office. It's like jazz. They're backing right. up in the pipes. You know, we got a, a big like shipment of, of shirts that just never. You know, the shirts that could have been actually. Wait, it was going to be an obvious fraud windbreaker like the FBI ones. <laughs> that was it. The, the, yeah. like um uh, like aborted baby sister meme, but it's like a trash future shirt that never got made. I could have kept you so warm, you know. Mm. Would have been a really you, high quality print. Mm, that's right. Yeah. You could have you could have struck up so many conversations with other trash future fans <laughs> at like I don't know the anime store or yeah, wherever they right. hang out. Uh, but as you say, right, uh, Sam Bankman Fried has been arrested. And uh, I don't know if this was on purpose, but uh, there is a photo of no, him. They arrested that... him by accident. So <laughs> like, okay, they, they bumbled into him and they're like, oh. Uh, well, I mean, again, with the amount that was going on there, the fact that it took them that long, you might as well say he got arrested by accident. I was just at the fraud trying to get directions away from there. <laughs> and all the business understanding uh, what, 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 what was very funny to me was that he was, when he was arrested, he, I don't know if he was like wearing a French cuff shirt that was uh, just had the cuffs undone uh, or indeed if he was wearing a pirate costume because he also had a belt across his midsection over top of the shirt 100 percent pirate. i've already been sent a meme side by siding his arrest picture with uh, jerry seinfeld in the puffy shirt episode <laughs> i choose to believe this is a pirate costume because wh- where did he get arrested mm. again Oh, uh, he got arre- he got arrested in in the Bahamas well, see, that's, uh, at his that's, home. Yeah, a hundred percent. He would go to the Bahamas and then sort of don a pirate costume. Um, and Maybe then get it's arrested. like it's it's like one of those things where he knew that he was going to jail and he wanted to have like one more LARP group sex session with his awful friends. Ooh, maybe. Uh, they they they, they he, caught him. He mid, wanted to go to Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville one more time. <laughs> Absolutely, he wanted to really experience it. And the the feds mm. the feds put him on like a an extraordinary rendition style private jet, and they're flying him back to New York to to, to try him, which is very funny. They're taking him to a black site in East Timor. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to find out exactly what the rules of this polycule are, one fingernail at a time. How how much money did you ever actually have? Just no more than ten dollars, please. Uh, so that's one one thing that's uh, been a lovely little gift from Santa. Uh, another present from Santa uh, through the uh, newsreels uh, has, of course, been uh, Tesla's stock price going into what is now a pretty big freefall based solely Uh-oh. on the fact that Elon Musk uh, cannot shut the fuck up. It's been interesting to me because one thing that's been surprising, I, I, I don't know if it's going to surprise either of you, but like the number of Tesla investors, and I mean major investors, who just genuinely seem not to have been paying attention to Elon Musk. 
Like, they give him, you know, yeah, like, you know, X million quid, and they're like, okay, yeah, fine, electric cars, whatever. Pay no further attention. And now, like us, they have to be aware of him because of, like, him posting all the time. And they hate it. Like, like imagine this, you are, I don't know, like, uh, a portfolio manager or, like, an associate or whatever at somewhere like Bridgewater, right? Like, a big uh, asset manager or investor. Yeah, and, uh, oh, sorry, I can't check Twitter drama over the sound of me like driving my Porsche sideways into like a blind curve and dying. Or, or even better, right? Wait, Paul Walker. Yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. imagine Paul Walker, hedge fund manager. Let's imagine that you're like Yeeps Vanderblumpkin, and you've been making great money for Twunkhole Capital. Uh, what do by you mean, imagine? Just sitting by just buying Tesla stock and then just sitting in an expansionary like uh, monetary environment, more or less, for ten years and enjoying the hype and all that other good stuff. Um, I, you can't attribute the entire like crash in the price to um, Elon, of course, because a bunch of it try. is just yeah, yeah. But a bunch of it is also just the thing that made it worth so much going away because you know uh, Jerome Powell decided to turn the money tap slightly down. But nevertheless, right? You could definitely say it's been exacerbated. They're all on Twitter now doing the sort of like finance guy version of the Grimes tweet where he said like pronouns are dumb or whatever, and she she replies to him like. Please give me a call or text me. I know this isn't your heart. Like they're all doing the financial version of that, where he's like, <laughs> "Oh, we're gonna, I, we're gonna like rip the cathedral out of the walls," and they're like, "Elon, the, I, I've supported you for years, but this, you know, has. I know this isn't your heart. Please text me." <laughs> Look, Elon, we were fully behind you when you had a company with cars that explode and that was never making any profits whatsoever. However, this is too far. <laughs> Stop tweeting like a divorced man. Stop. We have, we have, we, it's now embarrassing for us when we go meet our other hedge fund managers at like the, um, at, at like the charity gala where you eat sushi off the naked chick or whatever. It's embarrassing mm. for me to have this large Tesla position. Please be normal. <laughs> yeah, he's and a he's joke like, at the eyes wide shut party now. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you hate to see that. Because like he was rich enough to be going to those. Uh, you know, and now it doesn't matter. He's too embarrassing, which is like, if th that's the story that I guess keeps happening again and again and again, is that an ins an, the institutions that are supposed to, let's say, maintain the mystique of power, whether that's stuff like mm. the presidency, number 10 Downing Street, whether that's the CEO uh, position of all these various companies, so many of those institutions have been so broken or distorted that extremely embarrassing people are able to just leapfrog their way into them, hmm. uh, and and such as the various cavalcade of of you know buffoons that embarrass mostly their fellow elites, right? Because if the if Liz, Liz Truss is the prime yeah. minister, yeah, you have to take her seriously while she's prime minister if you want to take the idea of like eliteness seriously. And so she just throws a pall over that whole thing, just like you know, um, it doesn't like. Tesla is no better or worse of a company than it was before Elon Musk took over Twitter, right? It is about as stupid. The cars are about as shitty. And the fact is, right, it's it always... Okay, there's this um, comparison when you talk about the tech world, right? Which I think is, you know, it's illustrative, usefully illustrative to bring up, which is why a company like Garmin or Fitbit always struggle, or your Uber even, uh, always struggles versus a company that does more. So why the, the, Apple, the Apple Watch is a fitness tracker, they always have an advantage over something like Fitbit, even though they, do so many, they don't do just fitness stuff. So something like um, GM, right? They have a gigantic advantage over something like Tesla because, well, they have a lot of plants built already and they don't need to create a bunch of extremely dangerous uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, like lava waterfalls, in order to just make a bunch of relatively inexpensive electric vehicles. Which I think is a shame. I think there should be more Charlie and the Chocolate Factory going on in every in every factory. Mm. Like I want to go to a, the box factory, and for some reason, there's like a huge buzzsaw that just comes <laughs> down in the middle of the factory floor for no that, reason, with no warning. The factory where mm. they make that club, the box. Mm. Um, That's right. Yeah, and uh, so you know, it's uh, it is funny though that it's what has happened essentially is that. All of these guys, these like East Coast, not the West Coast tech guys who loved this already, but now the East Coast rich guys who want to be taken seriously and are probably and are maybe from like old families or whatever, they now also are all being forced by circumstances into like knowing the difference between a Pepe and a Groiper. 
<laughs> uh, and you know what? They fucking deserve it. Yeah, Couldn't the, happen the, to a better the, group of people. The culture war is now subsuming everything into itself, and you know, great. Yeah, a groiper sounds like a kind of deep fried cheese pastry you could buy in Wisconsin. <laughs> it's <laughs> delicious it, it's cheese uh, groipers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Re- mm. Post everyone. Post rare cheese groipers. Please do um, post yeah. that. Send us your groipers. No, do not, do not post rare cheese groipers. <laughs> uh, Milo, for your information, uh, a groiper was like when Pepe was no longer racist enough after sort of 2017. They got like a, a more racist frog. Pepe Loki Loki fell off for real. Yeah, he did. He he, 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 he not went, racist. He, he got anymore. he got normy. You know exactly. He got too normy, and and then they did another one. Uh, who knows what they're doing? Yeah, now. he's yeah. Since Pepe started hanging out with Toad of Toad Hall, it became a lot more boring. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, a, a, a jeers to, uh, to uh, Elon, but most importantly, to all the people who he has basically just forced to know about him and his nonsense. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going the right way about ending up in, like, an oil drum and or a suitcase. We can hope. We can hope for the Jan Master-like speedrun. Although, we, unfo- what, are we just living in Russia with other American embarrassments? Other Western embarrassments, rather, would also be sure, really I'd funny. That, yeah, I, I, I'd be, I'd be really glad to see Elon Musk at the like Steven Seagal Aikido exhibition in like, um, you know, him, Boyasia. Steven Seagal, and Edward Snowden hanging out and eating a big carrot with Alexander Lukashenko. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Eating one got... big cheese groper. Yeah, of course. Being being presented with like a a, a Lada Neva, and they're like, "This is Russian Tesla." <laughs> uh, I, I mean, realistically, this is also the best way we're going to see uh, Kanye West do an original score for a Steven Seagal film. That's true. And if you'd yeah. said that 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 mm. sentence to me, you know, a decade ago, would have been a very different vibe. Yeah, yeah. No, we're uh, we're we're going to get. Uh, I I for one am looking forward to the. Um, to, his, to all of these guys, continued descent in entirely self-inflicted uh, descent into strangeness. It's a more um, metaphysical form of getting divorced than just getting divorced. That's right. Uh, anyway, uh, in, in other things, though, that have sort of grabbed my attention as we sort of drift into the Christmas season uh, has, of course, been uh, some things uh, in, the, in the world of Britain. In, in the in the metaverse known as Britain, oh, no. the world in itself, um, uh, yeah, m- like everything's Except- falling apart. If you if you call an ambulance today, you might not get one. If you called an ambulance nope. yesterday, you certainly wouldn't get one because they were on strike against you not being able to get one. So the the solution to us needing five uh, percent amount f- to us having five percent of the ambulance coverage, for example, that we need is uh, to say, no, we, we, it, we cannot have more ambulance coverage. No, more people with broken legs. Oh, oh, heavens, no. Um, no, no, of course more, not. More people with broken legs are just going to have to adopt. May, hey, you know what? Uh, Tiny Tim seemed to do fine as his career as an actor. You could consider being a Tiny Tim uh, if you have a broken leg. I mean, leg. I, I feel like if you're going to do this libertarian shit, you have to follow through on it. And like, if people are going to have to like take their friends to, to hospital anyway... Let me put blue lights and a siren on my car. Let me do it. What? That's right. What? What is the justification for for restricting it to ambulances when there are no ambulances anymore? Let me well, it's do just, it. it. You know what it is? It's just a no blue lights and sirens rule now. Mm-hmm. It's none at all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, your ambulance has got to be a regular car. I mean, to be fair, too long have the British public suffered under the jackboot of fat cat ambulance drivers. <laughs> you know, you see them driving around in their gold ambulances with rims. You know, <laughs> uh, throwing rocks at the poor, and and rightly, the working people of this country have had enough. Uh, yeah, to um, specifically, of course, uh, uh, there are they are doing it. Um, they're they're basically ambulance ambulance queens. They've got their flat screen TVs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're wearing their trainers. Yeah, uh, the nepotism babies of the ambulance service. <laughs> you just try getting a job in the ambulance service if your father wasn't in the ambulance service. In addition, in addition to the ambulance strikes, of course, uh, nurses are going on strike. So even if you could get to the hospital, uh, you would unlikely to be seen. Uh, of course, this is in in stark contrast to what it was the day before the nurses went on strike. Where if you could get to the hospital, you would still be unlikely to be seen. Is as you said earlier, Alice. The thing to remember is what they're striking against are the circumstances that make it so that if you get an ambulance and you'd be lucky to get one, you're likely to face between a uh, like six and twelve hour wait, possibly on a gurney. Where uh, let's say the gurney, oh, if you're lucky on a gurney, the gurney death rate 
has uh, skyrocketed in the uh, last several years, which I, oh, I think is probably Nelson's something. friend just keeps dying. Something we probably shouldn't have, generally speaking. Uh, well, actually, Riley, I'm very glad that you brought this up because I think, you know, too long have the British public suffered under the jackboot of fat cat nurses. You know, <laughs> you see them driving around in their gold Kia Picantos with the rims, you know, throwing rocks at poor people. And I think rightly, you know, the British public have had enough. Why should a nurse earn four million pounds a year when the average Joe does? And the, the, the thing is, like, the reason why we're in this state is because the NHS has been like the public service of last resort for a long time. Like, there's a lot of people who might not have needed to go into hospital had they like had their needs addressed in other ways earlier. Uh, there's a lot of like social care and stuff that's been cut. There's a lot of like mental health stuff that's been cut, and so people end up in hospital uh, where it places like a, a burden on the NHS and they can't like get them back out of hospital again because there's nothing. There's no other services left. Um, but this is like a recurring pattern, right? Because the the one thing I will say about the British government, and this is distinct from the Americans in some respect, is that, I've mentioned this before, our leaders are so ruthlessly committed to austerity that they are even willing to do austerity, enthusiastic in fact, about doing austerity to like the bottom Jenga blocks, like the only Jenga blocks left after they've pulled out all of the others. Um, and the NHS is one yeah, of there's those. there's no tower left to collapse. The top Jenga blocks are just gone. <laughs> yeah. And they're like looking at this one Jenga block sitting on the table. It's like, I could take that out. It'd be fine. Two trunkless Jenga blocks of stone <laughs> remain. Yeah. Or in this case, just a table without any Jenga blocks on it. Yeah. Which, which gets um, me to my, my other sort of public service of last resort, which is the uh, sort of bipartisan consensus right now that if stuff doesn't work, whether that's the NHS, ambulances, trains, whatever, we should just get the army to do it. We should get the military to do it. So Let's I'll give fucking you, go. I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the actual the, the, the actual sort of quote here um, is that uh, Wes Streeting, the uh, shadow health secretary and sort of favorite by all of the people who I guess matter when it comes to picking who's the leader of the Labour Party at, mm. after Starmer. Wesley Street. <laughs> yes, exactly. The man himself. Action star. Uh, so he is uh, he when asked if he favors bringing in the army. Not just to like provide the public service of last resort um, due to the uh, massive uh, funding cuts, which itself is an insane idea, but specifically as a measure to break the nurses' strike. He is now fully in agreement uh, with the, um, let's say, the wildest Tory backbench MP fantasies that um, the rabble has gotten out of control and it's time for the army uh, to come in and instill some discipline. This fantasy organization that is just able to uh, marshal perfect obedience that has a, that has a perfect, uh, let's say, sympathy to the needs of British elites, right? Because it's, it's but crucially one that has also been subject to ruthless austerity measures. Because we don't fuck around. We don't do this like, oh, uh, we'll do mm. austerity no. except the police and the army. None of this American no. austerity. Everything. Well, this. The thing is, Alice, too long have the British public suffered under the jackboot of the common private soldier, driving around in their gold tanks with the rims, throwing rocks at poor people, or shooting people in Northern Ireland. Oh, sorry, they actually did do that one. Um, it's been so, weird. The, the vibe in the military, as I, as I currently am given to understand, is weird as hell, because they are worse paid than either nurses or ambulance crew, and... Uh, both both private soldiers and officers have been sort of vocally getting a bit sick of being uh, the last ones left to do vital public service, whatever it is, that is like currently on strike for being unsustainable, and do that in sort of like a continued unsustainable way. I have a quote here, actually. This is a, a quote given to The Telegraph in an article entitled, Army Fury as Soldiers Told to Give Up Their Christmas to Cover Striking Workers. Uh, any article that begins with, army fury that doesn't end with at loss to navy in football game uh, <laughs> should be some cause for concern the the quote is uh, this is from a senior defense source quote you've only got to look at a private soldier on 22k a year and whose pay scales have not kept up with inflation for the last decade having to give up christmas or come straight off operations to cover to cover for people who want 19 percent already paid in excess of what he or she would be now again, this is the this is the Telegraph. I suppose they have to add the wrong part, but uh, they go on to say we've got it to the stage now where the government's first lever it reaches for every time there's any difficulty 
whether flood strikes, the rest of it, is the armed forces as opposed to it being the last resort. And as you say, Alice, it's because they've gotten rid of all the other ones. But I think it's there. There is this long-standing British fantasy. Oh, there's a. I think like there's a sense again among British elites, right? What is what are so many institutions of of Britain for? Not just the government, but things like the press as well. It's to sort of it, discipline it, it's and to, punish. To, it's to discipline and punish, but also to like entertain, control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? But ultimately, it's based on this idea that there is a rabble, and the rabble have to be kept away from the crown jewels. And of course. And as more, kind of all these nurses wearing the crown jewels. And as more and more of the things that are designed to keep the country ticking over smoothly and keep the crown jewels firmly away from the rabble, crown jewels not being the literal crown jewels, but the crown jewels just being positions of esteem and importance and wealth and nice country houses and all of these things that are the mm. preserve of the gold ambulances with rims and so on and so forth. Yeah, the rims and, and such, such the like. Um, that the all of the institutions that are designed to keep the country ticking over in its current social order. Have been so so degraded that um, the only fi- that the only thing really left, right, is just uh, is the fantasy of the people who are um, perfectly aligned with uh, elite wants. I mean, Alice, you mentioned this to me earlier, but even the elite, someone like uh, Caitlin Moran, who reacted to the um, uh, sort of London riots in 2010 by sort of saying, "Oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great this. if the army army rocked up right now?" Mm-hmm. Just because. You know, the, these are people who I shouldn't have to see or think about. You know, I, as a rich person, I shouldn't have to see or really think about the NHS. It's it's was put there as a social release valve that I sort of resent having to maintain. Um, and so, you know, the um, it, it's no surprise to me then that if you combine that kind of um, I'd say that 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 that's that callously stupid attitude with uh, the uh, stupid callousness of neglect. Uh, you know, of course, you end up. You end up living in the fantasy world where, let's say, the army can, and not just can, but is willing to uh, step in and just put everything to rights and let you sleep comfortably in the evening. Mm-hmm. And the best is they can yeah. they can do this and like they're, they're not they're, legally they're not allowed to complain they're not allowed to unionize and I that I think that bet will probably pay off it just can't keep paying off together which is why like forever which is why you have every general officer in the world sort of like you know briefing against it. I, and I mean, like, I'm not saying that this this leads us to to a cool zone, right? But uh, it is it's a dangerous time, right? It's a dangerous precedent in in civil military relations, something which the United Kingdom has, you know, previously struggled with. Like, we don't necessarily have the same traditions as the Americans in this regard. And I don't know if if this ever gets to a point in like the near future where the the military makes some kind of political intervention, God forbid, then. It will be like the thought of, you know, uh, the centre-right, the far-right, Caitlin Moran, and just sort of like everybody who was okay with the idea that, um, you know, the the chief of the defence staff could go on uh, BBC News and say, oh, actually, I think Jeremy Corbyn's quite dangerous to this country. <laughs> you know, like that, that precedent, that sort of like the thin end of a wedge that has now widened a little bit further. And that's that's something that should be concerning. Let's hope this wedge has a flared base. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Don't, do not get anything stuck up your ass this Christmas, because no one is coming to help you. You will have to self-rescue. Not, I mean, okay. No, no. Corporal Jones from Two <laughs> Rifles will be sent round to your house to pull that cucumber out of your anus. And believe me, he is not going to be gentle about it. <laughs> it's like, listen, do you, do you want this thing extracted from your asshole by a private soldier from the Royal Logistics Corps? Or do you want like a sixty-hour wait on a trolley with the thing still up your ass? Because those are your options. Yeah, the right question now. is who who would be better, logistics core or royal engineers? Mm. Having know, to do the like sort of real like um, uh, the race where you disassemble a field gun and run it across a, a, an arena, but for like extracting errant cucumbers. <laughs> a bunch of guys from the navy carrying you over obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I don't want to alarm to alarm anyone, but it seems as though. Um, the regiment that will be covering the North London cucumber from ass extraction uh, 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 purview is the Paras. Thousands <laughs> dead. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no apology, no surrender the time we prolapsed a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, it, it seems that as we are entering another, entering an, another phase where it, it, this, this thing that is happening 
cannot necessarily keep going on forever, which doesn't mean the re- thing that replaces it's going to be better. But Heavens no. We are, and, and, and when, when the usual button of, well, let's just send in the army sort of doesn't, re- doesn't um, give the, uh, let's say, desired result, then British elites have to be wondering what's next. How do you keep this thing going as a going concern? Or do we just uh, asset strip it and sell the rest of it to Goldman Sachs as as kind of add on to the pension fund obligations that they purchased? Yeah, I mean, you, you, well, so many options. You had this joke about sort of like winding Britain up as a going concern a while ago, and it's it's not sounding so much like a joke anymore. I genuinely think they might just like expect to turn the lights off on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just trying to close Britain. <laughs> we're just trying to like the, the British government wants to retire. <laughs> They're shuttering it. Mm. Yeah. Soap, soap. I can't get hold of it. It's too slippery. <laughs> He's looped it up good. Yeah, the new Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Britain 2023, sure is a uh... <laughs> driving an ambulance. <Yeah. laughs> Remember, no Russian. <laughs> Call of Duty, Britain 2023 is basically just uh, it's more or less just like a first-person version of SimCity. Mm. Uh, great, that's right. Perfect. Yeah, can't mm. wait. Um, look, I think we've uh, we've about hit our 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 part one quota, so I'm gonna hand uh, hand proceedings over to me, uh, me from the past according to our perspective, but me from the future according to your perspective. Riley's actually gonna hand over to Corporal Jones of Two Rifles, who's been drafted <laughs> in to handle the second segment. So Corporal Jones of Two Rifles uh, will be once again talking to Dominic Loiser, and we are going to be. Discussing the idea, Great mates, those two. <laughs> the idea of uh, the poly crisis. What do we mean when we talk about it? What do lazy people mean when they talk about it? And uh, I happen to remember from the future that it was a really interesting conversation. So do check that out. And we will see you on the bonus episode this week, which I believe will be one from Australia. Outstanding. And then so, we'll be back in, day, in real mates. time in 2023. I wonder what the world will be like. The years uh, keep coming. What's it going to be like? Stop coming. Uh, and and don't get me started. Having sex with a woman and coming. <laughs> Much don't. like the guy with the cucumber up his ass. The years they don't they don't stop yeah. coming. Yep. Uh, the years and years <laughs> they made a guy from two rifles make me come. <laughs> Continue coming. The, see, essential public services like making me come have now been delegated to the armed forces. Very depressing. Okay, well, that's right. Hang on, that's not such a. Is that such a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, it's time uh, to do so some like military we've got to jack someone off. Uh, I've been trying to get out the capstone line of uh, this segment, which is, and don't get me started on ISIS for quite a while. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Thank yeah. you very much. I've I've gotten my word in edgewise. Says Corporal James of Zero. <laughs> yeah, we we've had to replace essential services like ISIS with the army. It's very confusing. <laughs> I'm being made to behead the <laughs> Yeah, we just gave that to the powers. The powers are now in ISIS. Mm. We'll see, we, us, we'll see you uh, soon. Uh, but you'll hear from me and Dominic, well, me, Corporal Jones from Two Rifles, uh, and Dominic right. uh, in just a moment on the rest of the episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. So it, that's the common sense view of polycrisis, at least as I understand it, as Matt Iglesias might use it. Um, let's talk about a more useful concept, um, especially one that we can compare uh, to some concepts in Marx. The, the main um, defining uh, element of the polycrisis is the, the backdrop against which is taking place is climate change. Mm-hmm. And if you accept that, then you know you can't really come up with a historical um, Parallel, and then you accept that the polycrisis is very much specific to, to our time and place. And then I think if that's um, your premise, then the conventional view, as you outlined it, boils down to because of the interaction of um, the climate crisis with everything else, um, with industrial modernity, which is inherently prone to producing risk um, in a way that um, can be violently and exponentially increased by our, um, our reactions. The interaction of that that risk society, as described by someone like Ulrich Beck, who's this famous sociologist, with climate change means yes. Now it's it's sort of 
it come, it, it's it's unique to this period. And what is this, what, what is remarkable about it is this interaction term. In other words, you know, when statisticians speak about interaction, they mean the effect of one variable in a system depends on other variables. In other words, all these different things interact in ways that amplify um, uh, each other's effects and. The whole thing is, quote, more than the sum of its parts. If, if I could jump in for a sec, the way I would understand that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, we, is that modern industrial, especially globalized, highly financialized society, has so many interconnecting nodes that it's become an extremely complex system, in the, uh, complex in like the actual formal definition of the term, where uh, inputs have unpredictable relationships with outputs because, as you say, there are so many interactions. Um, but also the system generates emergent properties of its own. Um, and so that relates to the risk society uh, by, um, by, by where we say, okay, well, what we can't, we as one uh, node of this network can no longer really dictate its outputs. But what we can do is try to minimize, uh, minimize the risk of those outputs. Is it, does that sort of, and, and the way I sort of see that as relevant to this is that, the way the way of managing society like that, which which is I think a, a pretty good way of describing a lot, not all of, but a lot of like North Atlantic politics, uh, is uh, that we are basically reactive, or it's very hard to be to be proactive, except in relation to something that you think is going to happen to you. You know, um, things happen to us. We don't necessarily do them. Is is that fair? Yeah, I mean, there's a need for collective action, which is higher than it's ever been before. And a need for expertise and state capacity um, that is that is also that also greatly outstrips the abilities of a, a, any individual actor or institution to deal with the dynamic of a crisis with all these moving parts as you described it, and that unlike former periods of industrial society that have this sort of risk a characteristic to it, take place in exponential time. In other words. It's time variant. The, the, the further we go along the hockey stick uh, of, of um, global warming, if you like, so exponential warming given feedback effects in, um, between greenhouse gases and, and, and so on and so forth, the, 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 the worse certain actions or failures to, to deal with the climate transition, the worse they, and they become over time. So that, that's the main difference between the, 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 complex system that we have in the industrial society framework now than we compared to in the 50s or something like that. And the difference between the 50s, say, and the, the Bronze Age um, complex systems collapse, if you like, a few thousand years ago, is that now we live in an industrial society that's even more complex. And we've add, added on that you know, global macro finance, global trade, um, far more like sectoral actors, corporate actors, and as I said, the the, the climate change hockey stick, which inter interacts with literally everything at, at any level of analysis. And that's why you need a different a concept that's different from the, the complex systems approaches. You need something that's historically grounded and that makes use of this um, this concept of the poly crisis. Yeah, I, I, cause I can see how that would make sense. Because the thing I was actually going to jump to wasn't the, um, the Bronze Age collapse, even though uh, listeners to this show will know that we've talked about the Bronze Age collapse quite a bit in the last few months, uh, for no reason. Uh, but also, I was thinking about the collapse of feudalism in Europe with, the, with another sort of similar set of interacting effects. We're talking, of course, about um, a, a pandemic, a much worse pandemic, mind you, uh, and also the start of the Little Ice Age um, around the 15th century. You know, so these, but but that it's it's plain to see that when these things come together, when when let's say, and you can just listen back to our episode with Patrick Wyman, where we sort of do a very detailed worked example of how these things interact with social structures, with the possibility for trade, with the development of complex trade networks, and so on and so on. Um, then you see regional collapses. In the case of the collapse of feudalism, it was a very big regional collapse, and it was a quite uh, stark transformation. You know, that sort of led to most of what we have now. Um, but I, I think what I'm sort of getting, what I'm understanding from you here is that the, the utility of polycrisis is that it is, is, is that during this time, right, in the, in the 15th century, um, you know, Tenochtitlan was still a thriving city. Uh, there were, we still had, um, we, we had civilizations that were sort of untouched uh, by goings-on in, in, in Europe. 
right? Uh, and and one of the differences in polycrisis is that you know there is we we live in a world of of, of butterflies flapping wings where these complex interconnections up underpin so much more of the livelihood of more people in the world. Would you say is that a sort of is that one of the key qualitative differences that we're getting at here? Yeah, and I like the that you invoke the the collapse of the um, of feudal Europe or the beginning of the collapse at least because it has many sort of many of the elements are there. You have a big environmental exogenous shock, or actually two, which is uh, the Black Death and um, uh, a change in the glo- in global climate, average climate over over a couple of decades or how, however long it was. Um, you um, the same way you have this exogenous shock of COVID, and you have um, you know, climate the, the climate uh, disruption, which you all, you also had similar elements in the Bronze Age, Bronze Age collapse. You had earthquakes and and famines in Western Europe, and that's why that's why you saw these movements of people toward uh, to the east and, and and political instability. But from just, the sea, some say. Some some say, um, yeah. What do they call those people again? Yeah. Um, I'm all for bringing them back, by the way. I think that would be a neat oh, solution yeah. to our problem. That's, that's the, we're going to go to Brussels. So I'm going to be like, we have, the, we have the solution for all you Eurocrats out there. Sea peoples. Exactly. It's the great leveler. We need, uh, we need the, the sea peoples again. And only like uh, Egypt survives this time again. <laughs> yeah, well. no. Um, the, the, the difference is that the dynamics are different this time. Because in this time, this time the, the disruption is is ongoing, exponential, and time variant. And that's why mm-hmm. if you could create one big circle, which is complex systems theory, and within that circle is a smaller one, which is a sort of Beckian risk society thinking, which is more specific to like all those same things, but added to that the complexity of, of, of modern industrial society. Mm-hmm. And a smaller circle within that would be the polycrisis framework, which is building like, like the, the, the elements the complexity evolved over a couple of millennia is cumulative. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that is building on top of each other, and one frame of them becomes um, obsolete over time um, because all these new elements require a different approach. And I think that's that's my sort of um, ad hoc, if you like. Um, no, I, I think that that makes sense over other complex theory approaches. Al- because ultimately, what we're talking about is an accumulation of complexity, and one of the Properties of complex systems is they create new emergent properties, yeah. um, and so you know. So, I think that the idea that interconnection would produce its own specific kind of risks unique to certain levels of interconnection uh, it makes sense to me in the systems theory sort of way. Yeah, um, also, that, that's why I, I don't understand. Uh, there's a certain kind of arrogance in the terms of criticism as well, because it says Wait, we already know, we already have the framework for this, we already know what's happening. Um, as if what they're saying in effect is, well, it's it, it's just uh, what you're describing is just um, you know geopolitics, um, macro finance, climate, energy, and um, you know global finance. As if that was something we understood in, in like in in the way it interacts now. There is no historical yeah. question for this, and therefore we don't understand it yet. Therefore, the most important word in that sentence isn't any single one of them. It's the word and. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the, that's the issue. Yeah, but there's there's also the thing, and I, I completely agree. It, that's what that's why the interaction term is so important. It, it's it is all of them, and it is not one interacting with the other. It's every single one of them interacting with each other in in in, mm. in ways that can that can hurl you into a bad equilibrium very quickly. Yeah, but um, there's also um, it's not it's not just parataxis, if you like, one lined against each other. Uh, you know, Linking chains to another, it's there's an order here as well. Like some um, causal mechanisms are much more important than others, and much mm. more driving. And climate change, I think, is the main one, but also geopolitics and global financial instability and capital flows, for instance, would also come to mind. But that is some of the theory building that still needs to be done. I, I, I would. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why I would also say that just saying that this is purely a crisis of capitalism is slightly reductive. Um, because I think you can certainly say that, um, but for uh, capitalism, uh, I'd say like, and, and the sort of um, incentives created by capitalism, where you know, like every country, if it is to compete, must compete in these terms, um, uh, regardless of whether or not it is formally capitalist. Um, 
that that prov- that provides a very good explanation, I think, of a lot of how we got here. But I don't think it's enough to theorize it. I don't think it's enough to understand what's going on, if only because um, it would be very difficult uh, to predict something like climate change uh, from our sort of early framework, or predict something like climate change as we now understand it to the magnitude that it's happening with some of our early frameworks of critiquing capitalism. Um, it's way too broad, obviously. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, normatively, I'm not terribly keen on capitalism, I suppose. I don't, th- I don't know many people who are normatively. <laughs> but, um, but they all work at the Adam Smith Institute. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Coolest you know, people in the entire world. It's like, it, these are all problems that are unique to industrial society, not capitalism. You, can have, you, have, you would have climate, if somehow we made, you know, if, the, if, the, if um, I don't know, if the Soviet Union had won the war in Poland and if somehow global industrial socialism had spread to the world and, you know, we were living in that, we'd, that sort of utopia, if you like, we would still be faced with massive climate disruption mm. simply because the, it's a byproduct of industrial society. We would we'd still have trade in, in, in goods and in people and we would still have geopolitical conflict. So there are, we live in a capitalist world and there are, you need to have those, you know, political economy tools to think about that world. But it's not; um, it's it's only um, you know, a subset of the tools you need to talk about. Um, mm. So, I, I think the the way that I tend to think about that is that um, you could very easily have created that problem, and that there would certainly be forces in 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 that state that would exacerbate the problem. I mean, yeah, they're. Uh, China, they they have they've banned all for financing of foreign coal plants, but they are still, you know, let's say, uh, not exactly doing a lot of um, wonderful things for the environment uh, at home. Uh, but that at the same time, uh, you might understand how politically to solve that problem uh, within a sort of more, let's say, powerful state that was, um, again, at least um, more uh, concerned with appearing to be concerned with something like. Um, popular sort of thick like worker democracy, for example. But you can sort of you can make those connections where you could say, okay, well, if we have a central authority of power, say, and power generation is done for the sake of power generation, not for the sake of profit making, and that the state has authority over what sources of power get uh, used, it's easier, I think, to imagine that solution. It's a solution that doesn't require interacting with as much complexity. It's a solution where you can sort of say, okay, well, this is going to take a lot of, say, doing and retooling, but you can you can see from A to B um, in that sense. So I, I, just to just to modify that slightly, I think that China is a good example of why people may not like this framing because it seems to me that one of the implications is, hmm, well, maybe our current sort of frail, constitutively pluralistic and coalitional democratic systems and small nation state units that have to sort of respect each other's sovereignty and cooperate with each other, maybe they're not very good at dealing with all of this. So this is the question about, you know, what will, how will we solve climate change? Will it be climate leviathan or will it be, you know, uh, global green deal or whatever? China is an example of we're contributing enormously to the crisis, but we also have the capacity to install more solar capacity per year than exists outside of China. Mm-hmm. And we'll do it every year from now on. And um, we can brute force our financial system. We can lock capital flows out. Um, uh, but I think the, the idea that something about the polycrisis requires a great deal of technocratic management and centralized decision-making that is not um, subject to the vagaries of everyday politics, which also makes me uncomfortable, frankly, but that, that, might, just, that might just be part of the solution. I think that also makes people um, sort of... Um, uh, um, um, you know, wretch when they when they hear that word and think about it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I suppose it's because you know, as you if you say we think we we wretch when we hear te- technocratic, largely because again, like so many words that I think are concepts that get under theorized, uh, we end up understanding technocratic to specifically mean you know neoliberal, right? It, 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 I don't think it necessarily has to. Um, no. But mean, in the, in the, if only because we are management. dealing with a. Um, we, we, we are dealing with a considerable, uh, a, a problem that is technical and requires expertise to solve. And that I think one of the issues is, right, and one of the issues that what causes liberal democracies, uh, such as they are, uh, to struggle with the polycrisis 
is that they aren't really set up at the moment to solve problems. And again, this is one of these other emergent properties of complex system. Well, why aren't they set up to solve these problems? Well, it's because in a lot of the reasons that they aren't set up to solve these kinds of problems, a lot of the reasons that we have diminished state capacity uh, is related to um, how we started solving one of the first iterations of this problem in the 1970s. This is why I sort of suggested that this is a bit of a zoom out on our um, our our energy sector discussion, uh, if only because you know what we were looking at was um, dealing with trying to be you know deflationary, try to take out cost and so on and so on, or try, try to um, try to reduce state interventionism and all this, uh, while at the same time um, trying to uh, let's say promote say something like a, an energy market, right? Uh, creating something very 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 fragile um, and. You know, if we look at why lib- what liberal democracies have done is we've removed, say, if we think of an example like housing, right? Um, we are in a long-term housing crisis, especially in Britain. We're in a housing quality crisis. That's um, and that quality crisis is exacerbated by the more extreme weather of the climate crisis. Um, and the state's capacity to respond to that is incredibly limited. They're not even able to agree on, say, a campaign to get people to voluntarily save energy by turning down their thermostat. And one of the reasons they're not able to do that is we've all agreed that we're going to drastically reduce state capacity, privatize a lot of stuff, and so on and so on. Um, and, and that the, these trends started in the 1970s. And they started in the 1970s in no small part in response to a previous energy crisis uh, that was, again, a, a, a knock-on effect of a macroeconomic, not just a macroeconomic, but also a geopolitical conflict. So you can see these long, these layers and layers and layers of salt of of both our um, both crises of our production and our reactions to these crises um, as building on one another. And where I come back to the sort of critique of, of sort of capitalism and neoliberalism as being, I think, very core to the theory of this is that if you ask why we were never able to address any of those crises in a way that didn't necessarily create more crises, it's because we were unable to redistribute. It's because we were unable to build state capacity. It's because ideologically, um, the things that might have worked to increase the variety, if you want to talk in sort of systems theory terms of the, sort of the state to deal with these problems, we're always out of bounds. Like, do, do you think that makes any sense? Completely. I mean, the core of that problem is our reaction time and our adaptability institutionally, politically, and socially is so unbelievably out of step with the pace at which um, these mechanisms evolve and how the, the, the material basis of the crisis um, sort of uh, proliferates over time. It's obviously much more quicker than we... We react to it. We do it half-heartedly, or much too late, um, much belatedly, and therefore we don't really. We might even worsen the crisis in the, in the process. Mm. I think what that is is, I mean, the the, the generic conclusion is the more adaptable systems, um, the more adaptable system is, the quicker it can change. In other words, the better it is. And I think, from a sort of you know Marxist dialectical perspective, you have to say you have to say, well, capitalism is you know if not. If anything, not dynamic. So, in other words, there are some ways in which, because it sort of automatically coordinates the, by incentives and uh, the, the actions of so many individual players, mm-hmm. it's actually quite useful in a sense. But also, it destroys itself because it it captures the state, and then the state can't do what it has to do to um, to counteract some of these um, these deleterious um, developments. So, yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think that what we have to Think about it. What does the sort of post-capitalist uh, system look like that can, you know, proof our society against the climate crisis and the poly crisis um, at large? Mm. But that doesn't preclude, I think, markets and because they're not going to go away, right? So, the, the reality of global trade and global finance is something that you can talk about the longer term, but it has nothing long term has any relevance for, for, for solving. Uh, <laughs> current extremely quickly proliferating dynamics. So I think the broader capitalist critique um, probably doesn't have that much uh, relevance now, mm-hmm. but it certainly does have a lot of relevance in thinking about how did we get here and how should our future systems be sort of um, robust mm-hmm. in dealing with these crises. I, I would agree with that more or less. Yeah, because it's the, you could vary. I think you could say, you know, that if 
if there was to be a um I, I think you could say, you know, if there was to be a sort of wholesale, say, like replacement of capitalism with something else that included in with it a number of state institutions ready to say retrofit every single dwelling in Britain, for example, right? That would be something that would be equal to the levels of crises that are being faced. However, um, I think it's also it's very easy to say that it's also it's also one of these things where if you are st- truly concerned uh, with, um, let's say, uh, what what's something I, I I sort of mentioned earlier that concept I want to bring back, which is the sort of drastic reduction in quality of life for people, right? Which is the uh, it how I conceptualize of the effects of the crisis, right? Is of the poly crisis is how is how many quality whether you want to call it quality adjusted life years or just the simple quality of life, the amount of the birth rate, the life expectancy, however you want to define it, it is a negative force on those things. If you want to ask, how do you do that with the government and social institutions that we have? Uh, that is, I think, a a harder problem because it doesn't allow you to just say to again make the, I think, probably like theoretically correct diagnosis that just replacing everything with a much more, let's say, um, uh, dynamic and democratically accountable state uh probably yes would go quite some way to fixing things but those that's not the world that we live in uh that's and and so the if you want to ask yourself um how do how, how do um how do you mitigate the reduction in quality and length and amount of life uh that you can as much as possible right how, how does how do you absorb as much of that shock as possible? That's a harder question. It's, it's incredibly hard because it's, it's like um, we're several steps ahead. Like the, 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 we, don't, we haven't even solved the first step, which is agreeing on a diagnosis of the crisis and the interaction term, at least. Like, not even that. We don't even have the structures or the expertise of people who can think about it. Like I, I know people who are working for, let's say, the Canadian government on setting up um, sort of market governance institutions to deal with the climate transition and they realize well there's actually no one in this in the entire state apparatus of, of, of the state of canada that even knows what they don't know and what they have to do and what they have to set up institutionally to have the mm-hmm. capacity let alone is there the the expertise and the the, the you know the, the inside at the political level and not at the public as well, where you can't let blame the public. It's not their job. People who go about their everyday lives. Oh, Financial Times commentators are trying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Martin Wolf and Adam Tooze's column in the Financial Times is not enough. I mean, that's like... <laughs> I, mean, I would say they, they are trying to lay... The, the commentate, no, not the commentators, the commentators below the article. I, oh. <laughs> I, 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 I looked at some of them recently and I was like, boy, there are just like so many, so many uh, uh, sort of middle-aged men talking about putting on a jumper. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Quite astonishing. It's amazing. But see, that's why, I mean, we're several, we're several questions away from, well, like you can think about it individually. You can say, well, there's an ex-ante case to improve high, like insulation in housing in Britain, which is by far the worst in Europe. Uh, temperature losses are by far the, the largest. And I think, you know, you and I, uh, me, you know, I'm sort of playing Russian, Russian roulette with my finances by putting on the heating now, but I have to because uh, we're freezing indoors because nothing is insulated here, right? Mm. So uh, you can have like, like there might be an, an economic case of doing it. It creates a lot of demand. Um, there might be a democratic case because you know it's popular to do so. But then it's not even clear that you might have a majority for it because it involves spending a lot of money. It, it involves investment. It involves mobilizing private investment. And then the, you have all these the, the usual obstacles. You know the, the deflationary block. Um, um, that's been weighing down on any sort of investment and expansionary macro policy and anything that might move prices too much. It's inconsistent with the growth model of the UK as a whole, which is based on asset price and valuations. So it's you can think about individual policies, but what you need is a whole suite of policies over a, great, um, a certain period of time in different polities around the world in conjunction with global players to even have a chance to address these problems in a, in a concerted manner. So it just, it's a complete nightmare to think about, frankly. Well, and, and I think the, the word that I would sort of tackle, right, the, the one that, the, what I might consider to possibly to be the, maybe the most under-theorized word and probably the most scary one from, from what you've said is the word we, right? 
Just like the word and is the most scary word in the description of the polycrisis, the word we is, the, in, to my view, the hardest part of its solution um, because there is, there is not a, again, thinking about sort of systems theory and about the sort of variety of systems, the, the, the things it can do uh, in compared, to the, compared to the challenges it faces, that the amount of, um, the amount of complexity, the level of complexity it has to, to face the um, disruptions that it faces in order to stay homeostatic, right? The size of the we that is required in order to face up to the complexity of the polycrisis is truly staggering. Uh, it, it, absolutely. I mean, it's all state actors. You could even narrow, even if you narrow down the pool to state actors with you know a certain purchase on public policy on global policy who are the main contributors to global warming, who are the biggest source of of investment globally potentially, who have the most geopolitical clout. Even then, you need the buy-in of other actors, and that's basically everyone. And it's, every, it's basically every private actor as well. It seems like if you look at the South African case, how people are dealing with you know, solving South Africa's dependency on, on coal to meet its energy needs, but also its uh, decarbonization goals. That's a coalitional approach to solving climate change um, or a- aiding the, the green transition, which is um, now emerging as sort of the, the preferred, well, preferred way to govern this, this process. Yeah, again, it, it, it requires a billion different actors and all of them have vetoes. Mm-hmm. And we were barely even ha- able to handle COVID. I mean, we, by we, I now mean the city of New York, compared <laughs> to say the, the city of Seattle, just because New York had a couple of more veto players, you know, the, 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 sub, the, the, the subway unions, for instance, and Seattle, which is a couple of big tech firms. Um, just because of that difference, at this micro level, at the city level, New York did a, a few things two weeks too late, and because of the exponential dynamic, which you sort of see in the poly crisis, that meant that those two weeks meant a couple hundred thousand deaths, mm-hmm. and that that is the the, the, the terrifying thing is it's the amount of people who are included in we and the, the time it takes to coordinate all of that. Yeah, and so it's. It's one of the reasons why it's, on the one hand, it feels very important to theorize, but also theorizing it feels like an unbelievably optimistic thing to do. Like, yeah, like, but um, like, like, I'm going somewhere. to get a look yeah. at this asteroid and maybe I can figure out what to do about <laughs> it. The asteroid is already um, uh, on entry to Earth, but I'm going to look at it and see yeah. if I can do something. I always ask to, to, how do you do it? Why are you so productive, for God's sake? Uh, and he's like, yeah, well, I have a very good therapist. That, that's always his go-to answer. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, basically, you're, you, you've, you pay someone about a couple of thousand bucks a month to tell you to adopt quasi-Buddhist approaches to life. Um, and that's the only way you, you, you don't lose your insanity. Mm. So, yeah, no, I agree. There's something terrible about it, but... Yeah, we've, and, and we've, I, land, we've landed things on moving asteroids, so we can probably solve this thing too eventually. Yeah. And, and the thing, and this is a last thing, and we sort of I want to talk about a little before we go as well. Is I, I think that you know some probably listener hackles might be raised by the discussion of technocracy as well, right? Um, and uh, I, I don't think that something like technocracy is necessarily opposed to something like democracy. Something like technocracy, as it has been implemented, is frequently. Uh, anti or very contemptuous of 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 democracy. That's because we have neoliberal technocrats. Um, yep. But I, I think that really, what this requires is a fundamentally like like so many things. I, I think that fundamentally, our um, I think very uh, uh, elite driven, uh, let's say, view of the world among people who matter and can act and so on. Yeah, the, the, the restriction of, of power among a sort of cosseted few who mostly look out for themselves and their friends and so on and so on um, has been an unbelievably significant driving force in the growth of the polycrisis as it has developed through industrial society and then been solved in ways that make it worse later, basically. And that a more robust concern for democracy, not in terms of voting and veto players, but in terms of asking ourselves who is who is all of this society, who's it all being run for, right? Um, and and how are we going to say where is power? Is power going to be in the hands of um, 
of, of you know like the, the Chevron banks and so on and so on, or are we going or power going to be say devolved? Right. Um, that this is possibly that, that it, in my view anyway. Um, the answer uh, it has to at least involve a much thicker conception of what democracy is and where it is is situated. Like just using again using the example of um, of Britain, just because that's where we both live, that's where we both talk about it a lot, we think about it a lot. Um, bitch about it a lot. Yeah. yeah, of course, bitch about it quite a bit. Is that you know um, if we want to talk about about unions, one of the uh, one of the forces that you could say is pushing back against one of the um, sort of, if you almost think about it like a solar flare, right? The sort of tendrils of the sun of the polycrisis that is coming out and lashing people and reducing their quality of life and their, their and so on, uh, is thinking about the NHS crisis. I, if we can see that the one of the elements of the polycrisis is a health crisis, that it's only going to get worse as climate change gets worse, we have novel diseases and so on and so on. Gigantic, predictable, um, but highly dynamic um, state-coordinated healthcare that's not sort of going to ask Am I going to treat malaria? How much can I get for it? Well, it's going to kill people, so I'm going to gouge as much as possible, which means we're never going to beat malaria because it's not profitable to really um, fight in any considerable way, right? The way I'm describing a capitalist enterprise. Um, the people fighting to preserve the NHS, uh, which, again, is, a bul- is one bulwark against one bit of it, not the whole thing, obviously, but one bulwark against one bit of it, is the nurses' union. Because they're not just fighting for higher pay for themselves. Uh, that's like one element of it, right? They're fighting to keep the job good and attractive so people do it so we have enough people. But they're also fighting for things like quality of care. They're fighting against privatization. Uh, or if you want to talk about prevention of climate change, you say, okay, well, who are the people who are still stopping or who have spent years keeping an additional gas pipeline being built in Canada? It is um, native defenders of unceded land. You know, It is the people, I think, who frequently are stuff who suffer the most contempt at the hands of liberal democracies and the elites in those societies who find themselves again and again um, on the front lines of trying not to make this thing worse. The thing you said about technocracy really resonates with me, that you have to not only define what democracy, redefine what democracy means, but also what technocracy means. And the broader goal being make it very clear where power in society lies and where it has to lie. I think you know, one of the reasons I'm a lefty, but who's who's still optimistic about the eurozone as a project or the, the European Union is, because despite the fact that it is, I think by definition a necessity in an elite-run technocratic project, is that technocracy can mean something quite different. It doesn't have to be neoliberal technocracy; it can be um, a technocracy that is, um, you know, very much accountable and that that is subject to democratic oversight of you some might kind. Call it popular technocracy. TM. I'm, I'm fucking trademarking marking that one. You keep um, that one. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably quite comforting because I think it's inevitable if you think about these crises that you need a great deal of um, expertise in state bureaucracies with a great amount of capacity. But it also means state capacity isn't just resources and expertise; it's also um, the ability to um, guard yourself against state capture. Um, and what that relates to is, you know, you know, uh, after Mughal and Robinson's um, um, book, The Narrow Corridor, right? So their view is sort of history and national society developed, you know, in, in ideal forms in, let's say, um, the Anglo countries, because there's a narrow corridor between state coercion, like being between coercing the state and being, being coercing society. So you need a strong society and a strong state, but neither can be too strong. So I think that you need. That has to have more dimensions. You need, you need capital coercion well, as well. You need to coerce everyone to the right degree that everyone has enough power, but not too much in order um, for a democratic society not to become lopsided in the current context. So unions, for instance, have been extraordinarily weakened over the last decade, and that has thrown everything into disequilibrium politically and economically, and that has all these... Um, um, the, the, these um, rippling effects um, throughout society, and that's what we're, we're reaping the, the consequences right now. Um, but of course, if unions are too powerful and not not in you know ensconced in this centralized wage bargaining system, they can do things that may benefit the the workers in their union, 
at the expense of all other, other yeah, what, what were you talking about basically is syndicalism at that point yeah or, or even uh, i mean uh, you know, german style coordinated market economies if you like yeah. not as it exists today i mean the germans get much much credit for I mean, it's not it's not it's not a utopia obviously but that kind of industrial society that used to exist in the nordic world and in central europe which no longer really exists anymore but mm. Uh, that never existed here, and which is also, I think, part of the reason why the UK is such a such an outlier among industrial countries. Oh, indeed. Um, so I, I think, look, I think this is a very interesting concept. I think it's one that we're certainly going to see a lot more of, and I, I hope this uh, little chat has prepared you, the listener, to understand when to react with contempt if someone uses the word polycrisis, and <laughs> which should be. Um, if they don't explain what the fuck they mean uh, and why and why it's important, where it came from, because ultimately, uh, if you're not going to think about this stuff, then what you mean by polycrisis is the news is scary, <laughs> basically. And block, block everyone on Twitter who makes the polycule joke. I mean, it, it wasn't even funny. Uh, it was always a sweaty sort of boomer joke, and now it's just become terrible. That's right. In fact, just block everyone on Twitter. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and do that. Subscribe. Anyway, uh, Dominic, I want to thank you for coming and chatting with me today. This has been very interesting. It's great to be back, really. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, hey, I will talk to you, the listener, again in just a moment in a segment that will be recorded. And hey, this is new in the future for me and that you'll hear in the future, but that I'll have recorded at the same time as the thing in the past. So update your calendars again. Bye, everyone.